Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with JP Pamari. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, on Final Draft, we're dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from taboo authors to household names. And every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is unceded land. We've never had treaty with the First Nations people of Australia. J.P. Pamari is the author of Call Me Evie, Tell Me Lies and In the Clearing. Josh has won the Nio Marsh Award and Tell Me Lies has been shortlisted for the 2021 Ned Kelly Award. And today he's joining me to discuss his latest thriller, The Last Guests. As the novel begins, a nondescript man enters holiday accommodation in Auckland with bags full of electrical equipment. Hours later, he leaves with empty suitcases. Another peephole stream has gone live. On the other side of Auckland, Kane and Lena are doing it tough. Kane hasn't had much work since he was injured in combat, and he wants Lena to put her family home up on WeStay, an online accommodation app. Lena's not too sure, though. All of her childhood memories are in that home. Who knows what terrors a guest could inflict on her nostalgia? Now, this is a two-part conversation. Josh and I got got together. We spoke for about an hour. And in part one... We look at how thrillers so often reflect our own societal concerns and existential crises. Josh shares a story that goes to the heart of The Last Guests and reflects on the real-world concerns about how we are being surveilled. Join me as we discover J.P. Pamari's The Last Guests. You've met J.P. Pamari on the show before, and congratulations are in order because Tell Me Lies has been shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award this year. But welcome back. Welcome back, J.P. Welcome yeah, back to thanks, JP Pamari. Thanks for uh, for having me back on. Um, I, th- I mean, it doesn't seem like long ago we were chatting about uh, the last guest and and tell me lies. Um, and I and I I kind of I probably said this at the time, but I didn't I didn't love tell me lies that much. I didn't think it was my strongest book. Um, and but apparently the judges of the Ned Kelly's do, which is really odd because in the clearing wasn't shortlisted um so yeah it's it's quite funny because now that i have some some sort of validation about that book other than it, i think it, it had decent sales but i think you know from the gatekeepers of crime fiction in australia um it's pretty yeah it's pretty pretty interesting where we're where we're at with it um yeah well i think i think uh, you know when something is is kind of i guess zeitgeisty it can be a little bit puzzling because we talked a little bit off air about the ways the last guests may or may not land, um, you know, particularly in this time when we're all kind of locked in. But I want to I give people a little bit of a sense of the last guest because as the novel begins, a nondescript man enters holiday accommodation in Auckland with bags full of electrical equipment. Hours later, he leaves with empty suitcases and another peephole stream has gone live. While on the other side of Auckland, Kane and Lena are doing it tough. Kane hasn't had much work since he was injured in combat, and he wants Lena to put her family home up on WeStay. It's an online accommodation app. Lena's not too sure, though. All her childhood memories are in that home. Who knows what terrors a guest could inflict on all that nostalgia? So, I mean, hats off. 
the last guest had me guessing right till the end, but I, I think I have to say, Josh, the, the perhaps the most frightening element of this story came not in the in the narrative proper, but in your acknowledgements. Right at the end, you thank James Waters, who you consulted with on the inner workings of dark web criminal networks. And you also say that it's almost inevitable that a service like Peephole, where people like kind of watch lives through hidden cameras, you say it's it's almost inevitable that it exists in real life. And that's scary. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the fictional Peephole and the, the network of voyeurs who... I guess a, a kind of a peripheral but creepy um, sort of role in the last guests. Yeah, yeah, no. So, um, so yeah, I chatted with uh, a bloke, Jimmy, who um, he informed policy in uh, in the UK um, via the police. So I, I assume it was sort of a police minister or something like that or shadow police minister. I'm not sure who it was. But he... Um, essentially you know he was sort of informing policy on it and dealing with uh the people charged with breaking up um pedophile rings and, and so this was sort of an international effort of course and um you know this is th- th- these these networks exist today that are so uh sophisticated in terms of um their anonymity uh that their their estimates were about 10 percent will get caught so 10% of people creating um, child exploitation material will inevitably get caught, which means 90% won't. And it's pretty lucrative, I think, um, for them. And it's such a horrible, it's, you know, it's, there's a reason why people feel such an emotional reaction to any child exploitation crimes. It's because it's universally acknowledged as completely abhorrent. It's probably the worst thing I think you can do um, what some of these people do. So, that the fact that only 10% get caught and so much resources are put into this suggests how far behind the eight ball we are in terms of, you know, tracking and trying to break up um, these exchanges of, of illegal content online. Um, it's almost impossible, really, you know. So when we talk, when we look at the, the sort of criminal side of, of, a well, like I said, it's an invented thing. Um, people, I made it up from scratch. Um, but when you look at the criminal element of it, you look at two things. Um, so the the realistically, it's it's harm largely harmless. You know, it's an invasion, a huge invasion of privacy. But the, vic- the victims don't know about it. It's only harmful when it gets out, and even in that case, you know. Um, not nearly as harmful as, you know, what, what they're trying to break up on the internet at, at the moment. So if you look at the actual damage of a service like this, it would be really low priority and it would still take the same um, level of resources to try find and break up. Um, it would still be the same level of commitment um, financially from, you know, these, these, uh, these big criminal investigation teams that are that are that are so underfunded and so behind the eight ball on the, on the task at hand. So, I think when we look at the inevitability of something like people, what we're talking about is one: there's a market for it, absolutely, um, it exists, and two, and this is what sort of Jimmy explained to me: there's a market for it that it definitely exists, um, and it would be so low priority that even if the uh, even if there was a, an awareness of this. 
um, there wouldn't be a great concerted effort to break it up because the resources are put to much better use trying to break up other things online. Um, so when we look at it that way and we look at the fact that it's, it's a pretty low entry point, you know, uh, the technology is cheap, it's, it's easy to disperse, uh, exchanges of um, currency are pretty simple now online with the rise of, um, of cryptocurrencies and that sort of thing. So it's really not difficult. Um, and so when he says it's inevitable, he doesn't view it as potentially as sophisticated as people. He doesn't necessarily see it as a worldwide network, but he said there will definitely be people who are installing cameras likely in the homes that they own and and selling whatever footage they they acquire or attain whatever you know it could yield stuff that certain boys are into and other boys are not um you know so so yeah i found that that, that was quite kind of gave me license to be really um to really commit to my vision of people because it was sort of intuitive to that point and research for me is always uh it's it's always fact checking it's always after I've written, I try not to research too much before because you just end up putting it all in and it's not necessary, um, certainly not in crime fiction. So it was just sort of fact-checking that I that I stumbled upon this. And, yeah, Jimmy sort of gave me that license to run with it. Um, and the other thing I'd say about this concept of people is it's happened. You know, um, since I wrote the book, which I, when I say wrote the book, since I started writing the book, which was a couple of, or a few years ago probably now, um, there's been lots of cases where people have found cameras in Airbnb properties. Of course, this is we stay for legal reasons. It's not called Airbnb, but I don't think anyone, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't blame anyone if they were to make the mistake, assuming this is Airbnb. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I think it was in the middle of last year, um, even though we're in lockdown, there was a New Zealand family in the UK and the father of the family who was, I, I, I think from memory was in tech, um, you know, he worked in tech or in IT or something, but he logged on to the Wi-Fi and out of curiosity, he checked how many um, other devices were on the Wi-Fi and he noticed there were a bunch of random little devices that he couldn't figure out. So he pretty quickly worked out they were cameras and um and got onto the network this this sort of cctv or closed circuit network and could see his family in the living room from the corner and took a screenshot and this was this was in the news and everything of course and um and so that that along with some of the other cases where this has happened where there's been cameras found and rental properties um short-term rental properties it's always almost always been the owners of the properties that have installed them there and i thought that gives the the kind of the people who are staying in the property it makes it causes some level of anxiety for them but i also wanted to flip it the other way and look at how i can include the um the owners of the property as being potentially victims of the crime as well. And that's where I introduced this element where strangers would stay at Airbnbs pretty anonymously and install cameras themselves. So this is your final draft community service announcement to check your uh, your fire alarms and fire detectors <laughs> 
or cameras. <laughs> the thing, the thing that really gets it though, Josh, is that it's in the in the home, and there's a tradition in crime, in mystery, dating back to you know the likes of Agatha Christie and Niall Marsh of cozy crime. You know, being locked away in a house in the country where a detective solves an almost you know kind of bloodless crime, and and I mean there are interesting parallels because those. Those mysteries grew up in a very tense time, an interwar period where people were looking for comfort from what was happening in their lives. We're in lockdown, but you flip this on its head. The picturesque lake house of the last guests, um, it's, you know, it's, it's not cosy, it's creepy. But I wondered about that role of homes and why homes have such huge potential for horror and terror in storytelling. Yeah, it's odd because um, for me, I think the ultimate invasion of one's, um, I mean, in ter- I mean, there's, there's, it's different, I suppose, for um, different people. But for me, the ultimate invasion of someone's kind of private life is to enter their home uninvited. Um, you know, I think it's different to... F- Cybercrime, where you you know get all this information about someone, even if you hack their um, Medicare kind of thing, and you know like that that as much as that is a grave invasion of privacy, I think the moment you step foot into someone's home uninvited um, and invade that space, that's that's sort of breaking point for me in terms of a breach of privacy. That's that's causes me a great level of anxiety. And, you know, when I was editing and writing this novel, this is something I've spoken about a little bit, and I'm not sure um, not sure if you're actually aware of this, Andrew, but we had a, a home invasion um, at, our, at our home. And um, I think when I, I'm quite passionate about this all, I suppose I have such an emotional response to this because of how it changed um, my relationship with our home. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, this place that's really safe um, for us, this place you you retreat to when you want to escape the outside world. And and if the doors are locked, you feel safe. This place was um, was invaded, you know. This this place was uh, became something else. And it took a long time, I think. It took months and months for us to feel safe here again. And so the thing about homes and, and it being creepy is because we we take it for granted that this is a place that we can't be touched um so my my reaction is in that instance was just a sort of anger sort of rage i've never experienced at the time you know i was um i don't think i lose my temper um almost never i you know i can remember every single time i have sort of reached my breaking point and 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 gotten so angry that I, that I don't have control. Um, and that was one of them, you know, when someone someone came into our home with a knife and they, they stole our car, but I didn't know at the time that they had a knife when I ran out to confront them. Um, and, um, yeah, it was just that rage, especially now that we've got a daughter at home. So I think I when I was thinking about this house and this place that's so personal to Lena, uh, you know, it wasn't enough for me that... Um, there's just cameras and these people are watching. Someone needed to do something with that to act on it because that invasion of privacy only hurts, only affects them. As I mentioned earlier, it's it's 
pretty victimless until um, the victims know or or influences their their life. You know, you this could have happened to anyone, and you wouldn't know, wouldn't be any wiser as long as it doesn't affect you in any way. Um, so I needed it to kind of break through, and I needed that um, the, the 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 cameras to be a catalyst for um, more serious crime. Um, so that's yeah. So that's why. But but in saying that, you know, the the lake house would be the exact type of airbnb i would book i would be scrolling through looking for something like that lena's lake house is um you know it's beautiful and it's based on properties that i've i visited um on lake tarawera so it it is you know essential it's an essentially um uh isolated but also you know homely beautiful lakefront property um, in one of the most picturesque spots on the planet. So it would be the precise kind of Airbnb we would book. Um, and that was another element of this was finding a dream Airbnb, you know, what could go wrong there as well. It's very, it's very uh, grammable. You know, you'd, you'd be posting this and, and while I want to, I want to keep going and get back to maybe some of the the ways the online world plays in in your story. I, I think let's let's kind of ground it a little bit. You've mentioned Lena. Lena is your hero or your your protagonist, perhaps. Um, she's a hardworking ambulance officer. She wants to get away, start a life with her family, move out, get away from the big city if she can. But the image that we have of Lena is really quickly complicated and I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be super vague because I there's so much in your stories that has to be discovered on the page but you complicate Lena's character and then for the rest of the book she exists kind of in a liminal zone for the reader her actions aren't all squeaky clean I wondered about the attraction of a morally ambiguous protagonist and I think fans of your books will know that you enjoy that sort of space where the the person whose point of view we're following isn't absolutely one thing or the other um yeah no that's cool that's thanks that's a good question and that's precisely what you know the sort of characters i i want to create um there are more than two types of characters and, and people think of characters as likable or unlikable um you know uh, they we have root for them or we don't care about them um, or, or, you know, villains who we sort of root against. Um, and I, I like the idea of unlikable characters that you still feel deep empathy for. Um, th- those moments in my own life when, I, when there's someone I strongly dislike but I still feel, um, I th- I'd feel sorry for them or I'd feel happy for them or I'd feel anger for them when certain things happen to them. Um, <clears throat> more often than not politicians in, in public life, uh, but but friends of friends and stuff like that, people who I, I, who I you know, personally don't get along with but um, would still feel something. I think that's the point, that you, you feel something, that you're invested enough in these characters. Um, and, you know, we've all got friends as well who you you'll meet someone and they'll say and they will have a very strong opinion about them and you'll you'll want to defend them even though you agree with that opinion um you know so someone might you might have a friend who meets one of your best friends and that friend dislikes them for some reason or another and you have this 
thing where you want to defend them, even though you can see their flaws and you can see their points, you still strongly want to defend them. And that's the sort of thing I want to create in readers. I want them to want to defend these characters. You know, they they care about them enough to defend them. Um, the other thing about this is there is no good or evil, you know, in the real world. Um, there's no pure good, no pure evil. And so um, for me, it would be disingenuous to try force that into my fiction um as much as there was a temptation to make lena perfect the perfect victim who can do no wrong um i i understood that uh you know this that she's in a marriage that's strained her actions are justifiable to some extent likewise his in their own system of logic both of them are in the right um so yeah, it's it's a good question, and and I'm I'm grateful for it because, um, like I said, I think it's, um, I think it's becoming a, a thing I do in every every novel where I try to make the readers care about someone who is fundamentally um, unlikable or dis or or disagreeable or are doing something uh, morally impermissible, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it, it strikes me that one of the keys to the way we feel about someone, and you talked there about um, this situation that we have where it will be someone that we are friends with that we feel we need to defend, even though we might disagree with them or, or vice versa. And, and that comes up a lot now because of our online world and our online lives. Um, I mean, in you know, in the moral ambiguity that you deal with in in the last guests in peephole, it, it broadcasts people's most intimate moments without their knowledge. But in a, in a kind of weird way, it's it's like the comment section where everyone that sees us they play out the psychodrama of of everyday life. And the last guest felt quite a lot like as much a book about the terror of our lives lived online and the way knowing one thing about a person, something that you might you might glean before you know the person proper becomes all all that we think about all that we can think about and i like the way you you kind of complicated that that online offline life i mean is there anything is there anything you you want to kind of add about that uh, i've 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 literally written here in my notes the online shit show <laughs> that yeah. we all engage in that doesn't involve major spoilers for the plot of course <laughs> yeah um so I, I don't want to be dogmatic about this, and this isn't a um, this isn't a book with a message. Uh, certainly not deliberately um, written into it. So I think in in all my work, if some I feel quite strongly about something, and this is, goes for all writers naturally, um, it will just permeate the text to, to, to some extent, you know. Um, and a good editor will edit out the parts that are ham handed and let the other themes kind of um, just simmer, you know, um, not boil over so that that becomes the story. I think that can be an issue with crime because crime is a sort of vehicle for um, writing interesting or important social issues to a big market that literary fiction may not reach. So, And I think that's important. You know, I, I think a book by, say, um, Cosby has... Uh, he wrote Blacktop Wasteland um, and Razorblade Tears, and, and I think he's doing something like that. Um, but the line blurs, I think, when it becomes, as I said, sort of dogmatic or a, a polemic on something. Um, 
So I don't have a, I don't have a real message about technology that I wanted to write into the book, but it definitely, uh, I think to some extent, um, illustrates my own trepidation, scepticism, um, cynicism about uh, surveillance capitalism, big tech. I think to some extent you can see that in, in declaring how I felt about uh, what I call wellness capitalism, um, you know, yoga and mindfulness and the way that these things have become a shortcut for um, being a good person. You know, th- th- these are things I was sort of, I think, critical of at the time of writing and the clearing. And so that came out. I think in Tell Me Lies, to some extent, you can see my criticism of um, online gaming, you know, how that, how something that seems harmless um, can be, you know, psychologically can be causing a great deal of harm to to young men and women. So um, that kind of came out in the text. And in this, it's definitely that tech, that my, my issues with big tech and people are... Um, becoming more aware of um, what they're giving up, you know. And I think there is this mentality with people when it comes to things like surveillance and and privacy and issues surrounding us, surrounding these, particularly when it comes to big tech companies, people's viewers, if I have nothing to hide, I don't have anything to worry about. Right, so put cameras in your home then for the government to so you, that so you can prove you're not committing crimes at home. You know, open your whole life up then if that's how, how you feel. The problem with with that mentality is, what exactly can, in in some instances, what can the government do with that information? Um, and political parties and 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 groups of special interests, but more importantly, um, for this story, what can big tech do with that company? You can't compete with the algorithms you 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 simply can't the level of sophistication how you know every major tech company has these teams of psychologists who are paid much more by them than they would be um you know by colleges in the states and universities and um and private practices and so on and so forth for their research they're getting paid 10 times as much to to convince um a pretty uh, defenseless public. When I say defenseless, we we aren't equipped to try to counter the level of um, manipulation that happens. You know, we just can't. Everyone I know, every single person I know, to some extent, is by every definition addicted to technology, addicted to social media, addicted to their phone. Um, addicted to their screens. I, I am addicted to these things and I actively resist as much as I can. Um, you know, until my first book came out, I, I just wouldn't touch Facebook. Um, I'd been off it for years. I, I was very low commitment on Twitter um, and didn't have an Instagram. And of course, part of the publicity cycle is, is a requirement to have these things. So um, I found how quickly it can you 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 slide toward addiction um, with these things, and it's an unsafe addiction. Let's not let's be clear. You know, it's not like being addicted to water where you drink you know loads of water and it's actually safe, or addicted to exercise which is problematic but safe. This is a pretty unsafe addiction because you look at things like Strava, a, a running app, which I think last year I probably got addicted to. Um, you know, if you if you're using this running app and you've got an open profile, people can see where you start your runs and where you end your runs every single day, and that's 
for most people, their home. Mm. So people can, strangers on the internet can very quickly work out where you live. That's that's not hard to do. Um, advertisers can learn what time you're exercising, when to market food to you. You know, like the, the level of sophistication is mind-boggling. Um, so I feel very strongly about this. And so it does come out in the text to some extent. I wanted to highlight some of these dangers. Um, I wanted to write about them, my own kind of fears that I've had about what people could use with my data. Um, and I know it's so easy just to accept the terms and conditions and fall into this trap. But um, I think we need to resist as much as we can because, like I said, it's an unfair advantage that the tech companies have over us. It's a really beautiful juxtaposing process that you go through in the book too because, I mean, you in, you invite and evoke that sort of moral abhorrence that we see in the the voyeurs on the peephole platform and to talk a little bit about the structure of the book the 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 these peephole dialogue transcripts kind of pop in um, between chapters but then we we have that very clearly juxtaposed perhaps in a way that a reader may not think about until they're really thinking about the text Lena and Kane Facebook stalking potential guests which is it seems it seems so morally clean because everyone's checked out someone's profile. You might be listening on the radio right now checking out someone's profile yeah. because you're just not sure. And I wanna maybe maybe we can go to some of those those beats that you hit in your novels, but particularly in The Last Guests, because I always find your storytelling storytelling gripping, but the pace and the tempo is often the word that jumped to mind is counterintuitive, but maybe I'm not. I, I, I want to explain that a little bit more because, without spoiling anything in the text, the last guest hits a really high point about the middle of the book, and I was left wondering, like, where is he going from here? Of course, now I know, but I wondered, I wondered what your thoughts are on what sort of action is driving a narrative forward. And your thoughts on also messing with the reader's expectations as you messed with mine. Yeah. um, And thanks for pointing that out because I think structure, narrative structure is uh, something I give a lot of thought to, certainly early on. Um, And with this, I wanted to flip the kind of sagging middle trope on its head. Um, I wanted to make, have almost a pyramid shaped or, you know, a triangular-shaped narrative um, to the extent that the most important part of the book is the, is the very middle. And the remainder, what, what I think um, maintains the suspense and tension beyond that point is the, um, is the mystery and, and the unanswered questions from that night. So, um, so the plot resolves itself in that sense because... Um, you know, and when we were talking about film and TV stuff for this book, someone we spoke to who, who I thought was, had some amazing um, insights uh, said, you know, you would break this into two series because there's this so much action in the first half and a big cliffhanger and, and then the fallout um, of that for the second half of the novel. I also deeply admire uh, authors like Gillian Flynn who, who in Gone Girl, does something pretty similar, changes the rules halfway through the book, you know, um, and contextualizes the, you know, first half of the book in that moment, but 
poses so many new questions for the second half. So the first half, you would say, is probably a, a um, typical suspense thriller, and then the second half is a mystery, I would say. Um, so, yeah, if it's a question about how to, to kind of maintain that tension after this pretty big payoff in the middle, um, I think it's just, as I said, how you answer those questions you've raised um, and we we can potentially go over the story, you know, there's there's still avenues to take it. Um, and as I said, it was a it was a decision. I could have structured it as a sort of before and after book. So there's mystery about what that middle event is and stuff. And and so when when I was looking at structure um, very early on, it was one narrative was working forward and one narrative was working backwards. And to that point, so at the end of one narrative, you get to that point. At the end of the other narrative, you've moved from the very end of the book towards the middle. Um, and that was quite fun and um, and everything, but, it, but maybe a touch too experimental for my market. But I think I, I experiment and toy and play with the um, narrative structure so much because I think it's so important in books like this. Um, this isn't a simple story. Um, but but call me Evie, I think is much more so, you know, um, and and it's narrative structure in that book that drives it, that creates so much attention and suspense. And I'd say the same thing about in the clearing. It's a it's it's not an entirely simple story, but the narrative structure sets up the biggest twist in the book um, and sets up so much of 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 the story and so so much of the payoff. So um, in that sense, you know, it's I think if I do anything well. Um, I would say it's narrow structure because I give it so much thought. That's it for this great conversation with JP Pamari. Josh's latest novel is The Last Guests. It's out now from Hachette. This was part one of that conversation. Join me tomorrow or wherever you get your podcasts for part two of The Last Guests. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means, well, this week we've had a couple of interviews. You're getting new episodes every couple of days. It is a great way to stay connected with great Australian and New Zealand writing. And uh, look, wherever you are in lockdown, maybe uh, maybe just find a little bit of a book community connect to connect with. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back very soon with part two. So stay tuned for more great conversations from Final Draft.